With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my, de- my guest is Adrian C. Neely. Adrian is a research scholar at the Jonathan Edwards Centre at Yale University, but he's also director of the doctoral programme and professor of historical theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids. We're really pleased to have Adrian on the show today. He's here to talk about his new book, just published called Before Jonathan Edwards, Sources of New England Theology, just released by Oxford University Press earlier this month. Adrian, congratulations on the book. It looks fantastic. And thanks for coming on to the show. Uh, Thank you, Crawford, and thank you for having me uh, on the show. It's great. It's great to have you. Uh, It's a fascinating book, isn't it? Because in in some ways, it's doing something that no one has ever attempted before, which is to take the in expanding, really rapidly expanding body of research about post-Reformation Protestant dogmatics and tracing that as it moves across the Atlantic through a number of thinkers and ultimately into the life, thought, theology and career of Jonathan Edwards. What's the background to this book, Adrian? How, How did you come up with such a compelling and challenging idea? Uh, in uh, before Edwards, I seek to balance the, I would say, the recent academic attention to the developments and intellectual history after Jonathan Edwards. On the one hand, I think the recent rise of Edwards scholarship and say eminent reflections on Edwards' uniqueness in American religious history, his say Puritan sermon style and substance and the appropriation of his thought in the courses of New England theology gave me to pause to offer another study on the preacher and theologian and philosopher of Northampton. And on the other hand, the rise of another scholarship at the same time that of Protestant scholasticism and the Reformed Orthodoxy of the early modern era rarely coincides, in my opinion, with studies on Edwards. Uh, but together, I think it offers consideration to reassess and to reinterpret Edwards' theological relationship to the early modern era. In particular, I would say the publication of um, Oliver Crisp and Doug Sweeney uh, with the title After 
after Jonathan Edward, the courses of New England theology, which uh, study was uh, lauded as a groundbreaking study of a neglected uh, topic. Uh, in, in fact, the book, that book became a further stimulus to embark um, on a more comprehensive study on providing a broader background of Edward's use of Reformed Orthodoxy and Protestant scholastic sources in the context of the challenges of his time. And uh, to make an, a, a modest attempt, an initial attempt, to show long-standing trajectories of classical Christian theology uh, that I, I think are indispensable to discern continuities and discontinuities of Edward's uh, theological thought. Mm. Now, to move from the sublime to the ridiculous, uh, you end the book with a quote from Aaron Sorkin's West Wing, some good things are not from New England. Uh, and the funny thing about that quotation is, of course, that in the West Wing, Jonathan Edwards' own Bible plays this very important role in one inauguration ceremony. Why, why are we still interested in Jonathan Edwards? Why is Jonathan Edwards the kind of 18th century philosopher, theologian, preacher, revivalist, church organiser, administrator, who still commands public attention, as that West Wing episode indicates. Why is he important? I think uh, uh, it is uh, for various reasons. I, I, I would list, uh, uh, say, um, two or three. Uh, the first, I think, the, the big push of historical theology over, say, the last 25 years, um, have have given many students and now scholars of historical theology a drive to give attention to primary sources. But particularly in an American context, we start to see over the last, say, 25 years, almost no attention to the Latin sources. People uh, tend to aim for uh, primary sources written in English. Mm. And so on, uh, in an American context, but also I think on a global context, an international context, there where Latin is not uh, uh, taught in schools uh, or considered even in graduate studies, uh, uh, students... Uh, like to do research on, say, English primary sources. And, 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 and so Edwards is one of those candidates to explore because over the last 25 years, his corpus has become so widely available, particularly mm -hmm. when we launched the uh, digital edition in 2008 at Yale University, we started to see a, a real a global interest of, of uh, the reading of Edwards and I have to say particular of his sermons. So not just scholars, but also pastors and preachers are um, reading his, his, his material. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, um, we, we, we see uh, people from, say, with uh, reformed theological inclinations or people with, say, more charismatic inclination find in, in, in Edwards, a, a articulation of matters of faith uh, intellectually and, and, and with piety. And, and this combination seemed to attract people uh, to, to Edwards 
and 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 give rise, I think, on the attention and scholarship of adverts what we see right now around the world. Hmm. Now, you mentioned primary sources, Adrian. I don't think I've ever seen a book with such full footnotes. Uh, and and if readers want to see what footnotes can do, th- this this book is worth looking at just in terms of the architecture of the page because. It, th- the, the footnotes represent an extraordinary amount of primary uh, uh, source research. It's really uh, qu- quite amazing. And I suppose what you're doing with those incredibly full footnotes is drawing our attention to this vast and uh, not quite, but almost totally unexplored theological hinterland for Edwards in post-Reformation Reformed dogmatic writing in Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about what that body of literature is and also how we have begun to think about it through the work of Richard Muller, um, Willem van Asselt and others. Um, now, first of all, I, I, I'm really pleased and thankful that uh, uh, the editor, Cynthia Reid of Oxford University Press, uh, allowed me to keep the Latin and uh, the primary sources of the, say, primarily 17th century um, leave them as it is and and have them in the book um, and not being driven by, you know, uh, what you see by many publishers nowadays. It has to be translated. It has to be yep. simplified. And, yep. or, 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 I mean, a really toned down version, which uh, was really uh, my appeal to, to Oxford University Press. Please, can I leave those sources in? Because I think... Um, on the one hand, I want to show this is the big, broad background of Edward's intellectual world. Mm. And mm. at the same time, this is just the, as far as I am concerned, the, the trajectory of Christian theology uh, through the ages. Um, and a third point is to consider those uh, uh, sources as Edward did what we call now maybe in kind of resourcement or kind of a retrieval theology, mm-hmm. going back to the patristic, going back to the medieval sources, going back to the, uh, in this case, the, the 17th century early modern uh, reform theology uh, that Edwards that is using, um, so being historically informed, but wants to be contemporarily relevant in his own time. Mm. So there is this massive body of writing that Edwards interacts with and some of the the writings that that he is interested in, that others in his New England world are interested in, some of these writings are read intensively. Uh, You've got a wonderful remark somewhere in the book where you describe one of the New England's theologians uh, reading one of Maastricht's works seven times. Um, it, It draws attention to this figure of Van Maastricht. Of course, this is someone you've written about before, but in in this book, before Jonathan Edwards, Maastricht becomes a really central figure, doesn't he, representing the achievements of this post-Reformation reformed dogmatics world. Can you tell us a little bit about Maastricht, your previous work on him, and perhaps why he was significant for Edwards and other New England theologians? Um, well, that, that is maybe, and I have to be honest in that, I think that is on the one hand the strength and at the same time maybe the weakness of the book. Um, the, the, the reason that I picked uh, Maastricht is not because I, I did my doctoral work on, on Maastricht uh, as kind of a forgotten, I think, important theologian. I mean, he is a 
codifier. He is not an innovator. He is a codifier. Uh, but in Maastricht comes together, I think, the whole architecture of reform theology, uh, early modern reform theology, in the, particularly in the 17th century, with four aspects, exegesis, doctrine, polemic, and practica. And, and those four components, I mean, yes, you have devotional works, say, in the uh, English Puritanism. You have dogmatics works in the 17th century on the content. Uh, the output is astonishing of systematic theology. Uh, yes, you have exegetical works like Matthew Paul um, and, uh, and, and others on the continent uh, on, on biblical interpretation. But it is Maastricht who brings those four um, say disciplines together in his systematic theology, the theoretica practica uh, theologica, and 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 shows thus the um, long-standing understanding uh, in 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 Christian theology that uh, biblical exegesis, biblical interpretation, is the basis for the formulation of doctrine and the formulation of, of practice. It is completely intertwined. It is related. They are not standalone enterprises. The, the reflection of scripture uh, give rise to the formulation of doctrine and give direction of the practice of theology in the Christian life, but arising out of, of scripture. And I think Maastricht is very, very strong on that uh, by showing that in his uh, 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 Theoretica Practica Theologica. And th- th- that was, I think, uh, acknowledged in New England as, as still the prevailing uh, architecture of doing theology. And I think uh, with the, the 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 rise of the Enlightenment, uh, uh, the the rise of the, the the changes in the universities in in Europe in the 18th century, mid 18th century, and later, uh, that you get uh, specializations, uh, systematic theology department, uh, biblical uh, department, uh, practical theology. Uh, uh, in New England, in the time of Edwards, I think it was still understood. That doing theology, those four components are are integral, related, and in, important of uh, doing theology. And I think uh, the the many pastors, uh, when I show that, for example, a lot of auction catalogs mm-hmm. after uh, auction catalog of ministers, I mean, almost, I mean, throughout New England, uh, Maastricht was known. Uh, th- this was kind of your go-to book uh, to consult on theological matters, but you had uh, at your disposal the exegetical foundation, the doctrinal formulation, if there were uh, polemical issues to to be considered, it was right there. And then, of course, the practical implication of the exegesis and the doctrinal um, uh, formulation uh, it is all present in, in, in Maastricht. Mm. So this, this is a community of theologians who believe that ideas have consequences, don't they? And one of the things that you show Maastricht as being interested in is the issue of slavery. Can, can you talk us through this issue of slavery, why it was important perhaps in a European context, but crucially, how New England theologians began to think about this issue using Maastricht and his peers as a kind of resource? 
yeah, you you have to consider particular if you uh, consider the history of the Dutch Republic that in uh, the 1730s, 1740s in the Dutch Republic uh, there was an almost a full discussion going on about slavery. Um, historically, uh, the boats from Africa. Uh, arrived in places like Middelburg, uh, Amsterdam, uh, other towns, uh, sometimes with slaves, sometimes without slaves. But uh, as I mentioned, for example, uh, Bernardus Smeitergeld in a catechism sermon on stealing uh, addresses very vividly, in very vivid language, uh, the issue of slavery. Noting, I mean, you have to be aware that um uh, that in front of his audience uh, from the pulpit were the the captains of the boats the the business people that uh, run the the boats from africa to um to the dutch republic uh, so, so that that is one very vivid example against uh, the use of slavery at the other hand you have people like uh, uh, Jacobus uh, uh, Elisa uh, that are entering in the University of Leiden, uh, originates from from Ghana, um, is trained as a Dutch pastor, uh, returns to to uh, to Ghana, what is called now Ghana, and uh, was actually defending. Uh, slavery. What I want to show, uh, while well, in the Dutch Republic there was almost a full discussion going on, uh, I think there was a kind of an awakening taking place in New England. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, I would consider Edwards as a transitional figure. While having himself slaves, his immediate successors like Samuel Hopkins, his own son Jonathan Edward Jr., uh, 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 are becoming now known in, in, in scholarship as one of the first advocates uh, against slavery uh, in, 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 the, in the, the colonies and what became, became, uh, became America. But, but that discussion takes place later than in the Dutch uh, uh, Republic. And I think if you read the disputations of Voetjes particular, mm-hmm. they were mm-hmm. very, they were very well aware uh, of this issue. Uh, and uh, yeah, Maastricht is part and parcel of that, I say, intellectual context of, um, of the slavery discussion. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So you, you show us in the book very very clearly and persuasively two very different theological contexts. The context of late 17th, very early 18th century Europe, the context of New England in the same broad period coming into the, the, the rise of Edwards in his pastoral career. You describe Maastricht as Edwards' theologian of choice. Why do you do that? I think in 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 critical points in his life, I mean, he he's using Maastricht throughout his life from about seventeen twenty five onwards when he received the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, he to a couple of months before his his death, he he's continuing to make use of Edward, but on very strategic, I would say, for Edwards. Uh, uh, doctrines like like his reflections on the covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he, he's very particular and selective, making use of 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 Maastricht, uh, whereby I think for Edwards Maastricht is representative, has a, a more comp. I mean, let let me give a comparison. If he makes use of Maastricht and Turton, Turton is another favorite uh, theologian that Edwards is using, um, but he uses Turton for a specific reason, only for, say, polemic theology, as 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 the genre of Turton's uh, elenctic theology, uh, of course, is. But Maastricht is the whole enterprise of theology. Um, and uh, when he re- when Edwards refers to Maastricht, it is always as representative thought. So kind of, uh, if I cite now or if I direct the reader to 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 Maastricht, this is representative of my thought on the issue. Um, and so I think in that way he used uh, Maastricht as a resource, as a source to confirm. And to articulate his own thinking on that issue. So, in some ways, he sees Maastricht then as representative of this broader tradition that he would like to place himself within. But does Edwards also disagree with Maastricht at points? Yeah, that is that is a good question. I I have wrestled with that for a long time because. I, I think Edwards, as a theologian, should not be confused, as I propose, with, say, the professional theologian of the 17th century teaching at a university, teaching uh, theology, being a systematic church history or biblical studies. Uh, uh, I, I think we should not confuse that. I mean, uh, Edwards is not of the same stature as a theologian. Um, 
That's quite a that's quite a controversial thing to say, isn't it, Adrian? Well, look, I mean, the portrait that I I I arrived in the book of Edwards that I am saying it should not be confused as the theologian like the 17th century, not like the philosopher. I, I really have a problem, and 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 I have to be careful, but. I do not consider Edwards as a philosopher in the sense of the classical understanding, like a John Locke. Or I mean, Maastricht was a philosopher. I mean, he wrote in his time uh, anti-Cartesian works. He had degrees in uh, philosophy as well theology. Uh, uh, it is not a hereboard. Uh, um, uh, so Edwards is is. Uh, responding to its time as a, I think first and foremost as a pastor, seeing the rise of Arminianism in New England, seeing the rise of Deism and he is concerned about his congregants, so how how do I respond to that? Uh, And I think he is doing that as a private scholar Uh, not as a trained philosopher Uh, not as a trained theologian in the classical sense uh, that wrote a full-fledged systematic theology. I, I, I think by, by, by when I read Maastricht over the last uh, now over the last more than ten years, I sometimes have the feeling I, I am I'm listening to an unfinished symphony. Mm. So th- there are some differences then between Maastricht, the world the intellectual world he represents, and Edwards in his quite isolated and relatively bookless. Uh, New England study, but you show us in the chapters in this book that there are some very important uh, links between them, and you identify uh, a number of big themes, preaching, exegesis, doctrine, and then finally history and eschatology as a way to measure Maastricht in particular, uh, Maastricht's interest uh, or or influence upon Edwards. If we take preaching, first of all, uh, Edwards is obviously the most famous preacher in American history, uh, but where where is he drawing his homiletical style from? Is the European context important for that? Look, as I lay out, uh, I think that is not an, 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 an unknown uh, assessment of Edwards as a, say, Puritan preacher or Puritan style. Uh, my, my, my aim of, of, of chapter two is to show that uh, the identification of Edwards' preaching or Edwards' sermons with only the Puritan style of preaching, plain uh, style of preaching, uh, uh, should be reconsidered. Uh, knowing uh, that uh, many of the, say, classical uh, handbooks of homiletics being it uh, uh, the very important work uh, of uh, of Erasmus, of uh, Augustine, going back to Augustine, the Doctrina Christiana, uh, part four, uh, many homiletic handbooks of the 17th century were present in New England, were were known in New England and uh, the Theoretica Practica of of uh, of Maastricht that Edward used included 
de so-called best method of preaching bij Maastricht. So when we consider those sources together with, say, uh, the sources of uh, Puritanism on preaching, particular in this case that I deal with is William Perkins' uh, work, The Art of Prophesying, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think we start to see that he is not just a slavish follower of so-called Puritan preacher, but that the trajectory of Christian homiletics comes uh, together in Edwards, but drawing not exclusively from the Puritan tradition, but is fully aware on matters of rhetoric and oratory and other aspects that are well known on the continent and uh, well known in the history of Christian homiletics. And I I just uh, uh, propose uh, maybe a small, but an, an, an correction of uh, getting away from, oh, Edwards is the Puritan preacher. I think mm-hmm. there is more more than that. Mm. Uh, one of the chapters that I think struck me uh, most powerfully was chapter five, which is a chapter about history and eschatology. And in particular, you, you, you put Maastricht Edwards there in conversation with the dispute between uh, Coxeus and Vutius. Could could you just talk us briefly through that dispute, how it impacts upon Maastricht, how he negotiates his way through it, actually, and then how that plays out for Edwards in terms of his uh, massive but unfinished history of redemption? Now, if you refer to the Conxain Fuchian debate, uh, particularly on uh, the doctrine of the covenant, Mm -hmm. Uh, older scholarship on Maastricht identified Maastricht almost exclusively as a Vuchin. Uh, my reading is somewhat different. I think I, not only he was a colleague of Witsius uh, at the time when Witsius served at the University of uh, Utrecht, the architecture and considerations that Maastricht give to the development or the Say the development of his uh, formulating of the doctrine of the covenant has very strong Coxian notions. Yes, there are differences, the, the very technical things on the offices and the uh, emphasis of, of uh, 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 Coxian stake. Uh, he, uh, Maastricht is much more restrained, uh, Witches is restrained. But it does not mean that they ignore the contribution of Coxian. And and it is Maastricht particular, which, which witches, to my knowledge, never have said. Uh, it is Maastricht, when he reviews the debate in, in, in his church history, that, that Maastricht says, this debate was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And also his whole upbringing was in a very strong Coxian context. So he was well aware of it. Uh, yes, he was an, 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 an student of Vuches, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, on the on his formulation of the doctrine of the covenant, I think there is this 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 seeking a middle way or or or, or connecting the Vuchian approach. The, the future for formulation of, of the Doctrine of the Covenant and Coxains binds them or at least makes an attempt to, to, to bring them 
um, to together. Mm. So with, with that in mind, uh, we, we start to see that uh, Maastricht is not what you would expect in a, a reformed uh, systematic theology of the 17th century uh, with the six loci that the sixth loci is uh, the doctrine of, of, of the last things on eschatology. No, uh, Maastricht is laying out on the dispensations of the covenant of grace from Adam to his own time. And, and in, in my humble opinion, despite a lot of ink has been spilled in scholarship about a history of the work of redemption of Edwards, I think in terms of architecture uh, of the whole product of Edwards and on very pivotal point I think he, he, he must have considered uh, Maastricht to a very great extent mm-hmm. uh, not, not John Owen uh, it has been suggested in, in, uh, in, uh, in scholarship that John Owen might have, have uh, been appropriated by Edwards uh, for his um, history of the work of redemption project. I don't think so. Some people the, the, would say that might have made it a better book, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's such an important book. It's such an important book because it says so many new things about post-Reformation reform dogmatics, including Owen, and so many new things about Edwards and the way in which he and his New England colleagues received and used that legacy, it, it, it really does set two quite distinct research agendas, doesn't it, for us to look again at the achievements of the European post-Reformation world, but also the achievements of Edwardson and his, his reception of that world. What kind of impact do you hope this book will make? Um, time will tell, but um, I hope that early modern reform theology, say post-reformation reform theology, uh, will be more considered as a transatlantic enterprise. Not, not restricted to the continent, not restricted to Scotland or England, uh, not restricted to the continent and the British Isles, but as a true uh, transatlantic enterprise. I, I just have to, uh, I mean, uh, uh, discussed in this book on the connection of the continent, primarily the continent and, and, and the New England and the, the British colony of New England. Uh, uh, much more work, for example, I'm working right now on the middle colonies and Brazil. Mm. Uh, mm. We have, we have uh, troves of, of archives in, in Brazil. Uh, of the 17th century, uh, where ministers that were trained by Maastricht uh, and, and during the time of Maastricht and, and Fuchs uh, were serving in, in, in uh, northeast Brazil. And we have those archives, uh, so much more research needs to be done to really make this an, an, a transatlantic uh, project. So that, 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 that's the first. The, the second thing I, I hope that people realize that when we study a certain discipline like post-Reformation studies or Edward studies, that we have to have, or at least we and our students have this deep awareness 
that uh, at times there is a very strong connection between two seemingly different uh, scholarships that are going on, mm-hmm. but 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 look more for an interdisciplinary approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that hopefully uh, will help us to be better historically, and, and in this case, better historically informed. And if uh, for preachers of today, that they are informed in such a way to articulate Christian theology in a contemporary relevant um, uh, way. Um, so, yeah, that is that is my hope. Well, I'm sure the book's going to make a massive contribution to that end, and I really look forward to reading your work on Brazil when that comes out as well. But for now, Adrian, I'm conscious I've taken up a lot of your time today. It's been wonderful to have you on the show. You've written an extraordinary book before Jonathan Edwards' Sources of New England Theology, just published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Thank you for your time and thank you for coming on to the show today. Thank you for having me and wishing you well. Thank you. And thank you to everyone else for listening in. I'll see you next time on New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.